On this episode of Playtime, I bring you a bit from my forthcoming book, A History of Light for the Artist. In this chapter, I explore the power of the printed word. In the first part, I spoke about the darker side of publishing a propaganda through the witchcraft hysteria fomented by the release of Malleus Maleficarum in 1487. In this episode, we redeem the publishing business through the works of William Shakespeare. There are lessons here regarding zealotry, propaganda, and the manipulation of the truth for purient and nefarious interests, which informs our modern society. The time period represented in this piece describes a number of published works in the first 100 years following the invention of Gutenberg's press in Mainz, Germany, around 1455. This is from A History of Light for the Artist, Art, Science, and the Power of the Printed Word. I'm W.C. Turk. one person could vindicate the preeminence of the printing press, that person would be, without question, William Shakespeare. Considered the greatest writer in the English language, and perhaps of all time, Shakespeare's importance and influence has reached far beyond national borders to speak more broadly to the human condition, race, politics, society, and even gender. We shall come to that importance in due course, but first it is imperative to quantify the argumentative substrates, either defending or questioning the provenance of Shakespeare's work. Modern critics have endeavored to assert that William Shakespeare, 1564 to 1616, by a lack of documentable evidence, or through prima facie evidence, was not the author of some three narrative poems, 39 plays, and 154 sonnets. Some even believe that William Shakespeare did not exist at all. We can be certain, however, that William Shakespeare was baptized on April 26, 1564, in the English market town, in the English market town of Stratford-upon-Avon, to John and Mary Shakespeare. It is important to note the social and political era in which he was born. Six years earlier, Queen Elizabeth ascended to the throne. King Henry VIII had broken with the Roman Catholic Church, a policy continued by his son, Edward VI. Following young Edward's death by illness in 1553, the policy was reversed by Henry's daughter, Mary I, leading to hundreds of executions of leading Protestants opposed to the reversal. In 1558, Mary died from complications of childbirth without a male heir. The crown fell to her sister, Elizabeth. Elizabeth had agents and spies everywhere, especially against Catholics. And it is important to know two things here. First, William's father was baptized Catholic, while his son was baptized under the Protestant Church of England. Second, England was by law a Protestant state at the time of William's birth. William Shakespeare was born into a world in which the faith of his parents was outlawed. His father was a penny-pinching, well-connected glove-maker in Stratford-upon-Avon often just this side of debtor's prison. 
In fact, it is said that John Shakespeare avoided church for a time on fears of being arrested over unpaid debts. Simply avoiding the state's official Protestant masses would have been cause enough for suspicion. In a town of around 2,000 people, for a public official, that would have necessitated all sorts of negotiations and subterfuges, which young William would certainly have witnessed. William was born at a time of plague, but also at the height of the Renaissance, the Renascita, or rebirth of classical Greek and Roman ideas across Europe. Educational emphasis was less about scripture and more about humanist subjects like math, science, and philosophy. Julius Caesar's commentaries on the Civil War, originally written in 49 to 48 BC, had been rediscovered a few centuries earlier. The often ostentatious Life of the Caesars, more commonly known as the Twelve Caesars, written by Suetonius in the 2nd century AD, was also widely available. But it was Thomas North's 1579 English translation of Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans that is more commonly associated with source material for Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Plutarch, writing before Suetonius, however, does not quote any final utterances from the dying Caesar. With dramatic artistic license from Suetonius, quote, and you too, my child, unquote, comes the enduring lament in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, et tu, Brute? You too, Brutus? first performed in 1599. That doesn't prove, one way or the other, that William Shakespeare did or did not write the words. But Shakespeare would be 16 years of age at the time North published his book and nearing the end of his formal studies. No doubt the dramatic and exciting tales of Caesar and Rome would have made a powerful impact upon any young man. We shall come back to Caesar shortly. Part of young Shakespeare's foundational education would have entailed the art a rhetorical argument. He would have learned to construct persuasive arguments from each perspective of an issue. That was the cultural benefit of humanism, which relied on classical sources like Plutarch, Ovid, Plato, and Aristotle. This sort of formal education was still a luxury afforded William through his father's position. In fact, all literature is an aspect in details, a channeling of both the writer's conscious and unconscious thought. If a reader is careful, observant, and knowledgeable of the author or artist, a degree of autobiographical detail may be plucked from a work. Shakespeare, viewed through this lens, allows us a window into his experience. When he was 18 years old, William married Anne Hathaway, who was eight years his senior. Anne was already three months pregnant, hastening the couple's marriage. The marriage is attested in a license issued by the Diocese of Worcester on November 27, 1582. Six months later, the Shakespeare's are recorded baptizing their first child, a daughter, Susanna. Then, in February 1585, we have a record of the baptizing of twins, a son, Hamnet, and daughter, Judith. We can be quite sure that William Shakespeare was a real person. Outside of that, little to nothing is known or recorded about Shakespeare's life for roughly the next five to seven years. Therein lies the rub, so to speak. For many anti-Stratfordians, or those skeptical of Shakespeare's talent, it is that empty period, from our perspective, that leads us to question Shakespeare's authorship. 
In that seven years, he seems to make a leap from zero literary output to three Henry VI plays. From the distant hamlet of Stratford-upon-Avon to London, and from no discernible trade to an emerging player in London theatre. A look at the state of English Renaissance theatre brings us a bit of much-needed perspective. We can separate English Renaissance theatre into three periods. The first is Elizabethan theatre, which spanned Queen Elizabeth's reign from 1562 to 1603, the second during the reigns of James VI from 1603 to 1625, and the Caroline Theatre during the troubled rule of Charles I from 1625 to 1642. A long building feud between Parliament and Charles erupted into a civil war by late summer 1642. September 2nd, 1642, Parliament issued an order for stage plays to cease. During Shakespeare's life, theater was an emerging and blossoming art form. The year William was born, there were no permanent theaters in England. The Red Lion, England's first permanent theater, opened in 1567. In 1572, the mayor of London banned all plays because of the plague epidemic, and three years later expelled actors from the city. Theatre operators subsequently moved outside of the city and constructed theatres including The Theatre, built in 1576. One of the partners of this new theatre was John Brain, who owned London's Red Lion. Among the acting troops the theatre engaged was the Lord Chamberlain's Men, which would count William Shakespeare as actor and playwright. In 1577, the Curtain Theatre opened nearby, creating England's first successful theatre district. Within a few years, as young William Shakespeare was coming of age, theatres on the outskirts of London were burgeoning with spectators. In other words, the success of the theatre and the allure of storytelling on stage would have provided a powerful attraction for a young man. Touring companies travelled throughout England and even performed before audiences in Europe. We tend to view through a modern lens, that an educational history predicts future career orientation, yet the emerging and overwhelming popularity in theater in Renaissance England presented extraordinary opportunities to write and perform to cheers and applause stories William had heard and studied as a student. And we can connect many of those plays to historical sources available to Shakespeare. These were literate, well-educated people innovating the origins of modern theater. The fact that Shakespeare was a playwright and actor is attested from any number of collaborators and contemporary sources. Back to the so-called missing years, we can easily divine the necessary periods of discovery, exploration, learning, and practice. It may also provide insight into writing and inspiration. As wild and frenetic as a rapidly evolving English theater culture proved, Shakespeare may have been a funnel as well, putting pen to paper over unscripted or loosely scripted works within a theater company. As we began earlier, throughout all of his career, Shakespeare remained married to Anne. While she slept in their home in Stratford-upon-Avon, Shakespeare traveled frequently between London and Stratford, a carriage ride which would have taken perhaps two days. 
Did this passage from the play Julius Caesar between Brutus and his wife Portia betray the difficulties, not to mention the separate worlds between them? Portia, you have some sick offense with your mind, which by the right and virtue of my place I ought to know of. Upon my knees I charm you, by my once commended beauty, by all of your vows and love, that great vow, which did incorporate and make us one, that you unfold me, yourself, your half, why you were heavy, and what men tonight have had to resort to you. For here have been six or seven who did hide their faces even from darkness. Brutus, kneel not, gentle Portia. Portia, I should not need, if you were gentle, Brutus. Within the bond of marriage, tell me, Brutus, is it expected I should know no secrets that appertain to you? Am I yourself but, as it were, in sort of limitation, to keep with you at meals, comfort your bed, and talk to you sometimes? Dwell but I in the suburbs of your good pleasure? If it be no more, Portia is Brutus's harlot, not his wife. Brutus. But you are my true and honorable wife, as dear to me as the ruddy drops that visit my sad heart. Portia. If this were true, then I should know the secret. I grant I am a woman. I grant I am a woman, but withal a woman well reputed, Cato's daughter. Think you I am no stronger than my sex, being so fathered and so husbanded? Tell me your counsels. I will not disclose them. I have made strong proof of my constancy, giving myself a voluntary wound here in the thigh. Can I bear that with patience? and not my husband's secrets? The debate of authorship of Shakespeare's works fall between those who unequivocally accept the authorship of William Shakespeare the man, the so-called Stratfordians, and the anti-Stratfordians, or Oxfordians, referring to the prime, though hardly only proposed candidate for authorship, Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, 1550-1604. The anti-Shakespearean, or anti-Stratfordians, at various times over the last 150 years, have proposed no fewer than 85 potential authors for Shakespeare's 39 known plays. The argument becomes, for the first real time in human history, one of proper attribution for the artist. That level of debate is unique for an artist from that period, but the vitriolic nature of the debate threatens to erode the overall legitimacy of the work. Both sides are, after all, working from the same set of facts, many bearing their own questionable provenance, especially after some 500 years. The proper attribution should be of paramount importance for any piece of literature to either side. That said, it should not be a hill that either side endeavors to die upon, but upon what is and what can be proved and the acceptance of that ultimate truth. At the core of the Oxfordian argument is the lack of notes, sketches, or writings by William Shakespeare, which would show his work in progress or linking the man directly to the work. They assert that biographical assumptions about the life of Shakespeare are insufficient in attributing authorship. The alternate, however, is equally true, that those same assumptions cannot disprove authorship after five centuries. 
Likewise, Oxfordians and anti-Stratfordians contend that William Shakespeare did not maintain the necessary education or life experience to write, to write such worldly plays and poems. Shakespeare did not become an actor in the company to which the plays are attributed and had collaborators on many of his works. The English playwright John Fletcher, 1579-1625, collaborated with Shakespeare on the epic Henry VIII written on or before 1613. Robert Greene, 1558-1592, a prolific writer and poet, and one of the first professional authors in Elizabethan England, is now believed to have collaborated on Titus Andronicus, believed to have been written between 1588 and 1592. There was also a heavyweight in the theater during the Elizabethan period, the playwright Christopher Marlowe, 1564-1593. In 2016, the new Oxford Shakespeare edition of Shakespeare's works listed Marlowe as a co-author of the play series Henry VI, parts 1 through 3. One cannot collaborate with someone who does not write or who does not exist. So the overriding question remains of why undertake such a conspiracy. Shakespeare's 1597 comedy, The Merry Wives of Windsor, was commissioned by Queen Elizabeth, who wished to see the large, boisterous fictional character, Sir John Falstaff, from Henry V, fall in love. Shakespeare was quite well known in his lifetime. Why no posthumous reveals, deathbed revelations, or contemporaries slighted over prophets, attribution, or critical acclaim? Fear of retribution over a stigma about writers simply does not hold water, especially for De Vere, particularly in light of King James publishing a Bible under his name. Perhaps there is another way of looking at the works of Shakespeare, which may help to explain much of the anti-Stratfordians' misgivings and assuage the egos on the Stratfordians. There is an absence of primary documentation regarding the plays and writings of William Shakespeare. We may look at a number of Shakespeare's plays as commentaries on the English realm and perhaps a bit of subterfuge cautiously rendered. We start with the contemporary playwright of Shakespeare, Christopher Marlowe. Both Shakespeare and Marlowe knew one another. Marlowe was an influence on Shakespeare as well. In 2016, Oxford University Press credited Marlowe as the co-author on three Shakespeare plays, Henry VI, Parts 1 through 3. But Marlowe proves every bit the enigmatic figure for the anti-Stratfordians that they assert about Shakespeare, perhaps even more so. Earlier we noted that Queen Elizabeth had, ostensibly, religious spies everywhere. Even the English theater community was not without intrigue. Shakespeare kept no surviving notes and did not keep a journal. That was not uncommon at the time, and by doing so, he may have risked his own life, and perhaps those of his family and fellow thespians. There is some evidence that those intrigues may have befallen his close acquaintances, Christopher Marlowe and Thomas Kidd, baptized November 6, 1558, and buried August 15, 1594. 
Marlowe grew up from the same humble stock as Shakespeare, later seeking out the excitement of this new and vibrant world of English Renaissance theater. Kidd was the son of a royal scrivener, or court transcriber. Kidd received a gentleman's education in Latin, Greek, music, drama, and especially proper manners. Like Shakespeare, Kidd did not appear to have attended university. Christopher Marlowe attended Cambridge, wherein lies part of our intrigue. Kidd, the oldest of the three, became a well-known playwright in the early English theater. He and Marlowe shared for a time lodgings together and had already had some success with his play, a Spanish tragedy first recorded as performed on February 23, 1592. He may have also been the writer of an early version of Shakespeare's Hamlet, known as the original or Ur-Hamlet. Shakespeare's Hamlet was likely a new version rather than a plagiarized version. Like Marlowe, Kidd's plays were strongly inspired by the tragedy plays of Roman playwright and Stoic Seneca the Younger, circa 4 BC to 65 AD. It is believed that Kidd and Marlowe shared ideas and that even the mere consideration of certain ideas were viewed as dangerous and subversive. There was no shortage of disdain from Puritans and their agents for theater. One man, Richard Baines, was a double agent for England, who had been ordained a Catholic priest, then sent to the English College, a Catholic seminary, at Reims, France. English Catholics were being cultivated for the priesthood with the goal of returning surreptitiously to Protestant England. Baines became a roommate to Kidd and Marlowe, which precipitated their downfall. Kidd had already violated the law by portraying a royal form of execution on stage. Not that the Spanish tragedy wasn't already especially violent, but the realm forbid the depiction of officially sanctioned forms of execution. Hanging, burning at the stake, beheading, because it believed such depictions only lessened their deterrence. Moreover, the Protestant Puritans and the government vehemently opposed the so-called cross-dressing of the theater. Because women were not allowed to be part of theatrical performances, men had to play male and female roles. The Puritans were opposed to theater in general. Cross-dressing, they asserted, blurred the lines between the biblical concept of men and women. Theater companies and playwrights predictably took on the role of antagonist with great relish and began to write and cast cross-dressing characters like Portia in Shakespeare's comedy, The Merchant of Venice. Just how far playwrights relished their position as anti-authoritarian antagonists is perhaps best represented by comparing Marlowe's Edward II, 1592, to Shakespeare's Richard II, 1595. Emma Smith, professor of Shakespeare studies at the University of Oxford in UK, writing in her 2021 book, This is Shakespeare, observed that, quote, by making Richard a weak king, Shakespeare is obviously influenced by Edward II, a history play by his brilliant contemporary Christopher Marlowe. Yet, where Marlowe depicts a sexual relationship between Edward and Gaveston, homoeroticism in Richard's court is largely underplayed. Unquote. Accusations of sodomy, which would later become synonymous with the 19th century term homosexuality, was equated with heresy in 14th century England and illegal during the lives of Shakespeare and Marlowe. 
It was a serious charge for Marlowe even to allude to, as he appears to do in this piece from Edward II. Enter Queen Isabella, Mortimer the Younger. Madam, whither walks your majesty so fast? Queen Isabella, unto the forest, gentle Mortimer, to give grief and baleful discontent. For now my lord the king regards me not, but dotes upon the love of Gaveston. He claps his cheeks, and hangs about his neck, smiles in his face, and whispers in his ears. When I come, he frowns, as who should say, Go whither thou wilt, seeing I have Gaveston. Mortimer the Elder. Is it not strange that he is thus bewitched? Mortimer the Younger. Madam, return on to court again. That sly, unveiling Frenchman will exile, or lose our lives, and yet, ere that day come, the king shall lose his crown, for we have power and courage, too, to be revenged at full. It is a decidedly dark and accusatory play, but by insinuating Richard's sexuality, Marlowe was blatantly flouting a declaration by Queen Elizabeth about the unquestioned heavenly inviability of the royal mandate. Professor Smith again, quote, An official Elizabethan sermon inveighed against rebellion, arguing that Lucifer was the founder of rebellion, that earthly kings were ordained by God, and that even rebellion against a wicked ruler was not to be sanctioned. She quotes, A rebel is worse than the worst prince, and the rebellion worse than the worst government of the worst prince that hath hitherto been. Unquote. If Marlowe was seeking a line to cross, apparently he found that line. The genius of Shakespeare as Richard II is that he teased that line without crossing it. Richard II describes the final years of Richard II, King of England's reign, who ruled from 1377 until deposed and locked up in a castle in West Yorkshire. Richard is said to have starved to death. Events at the start of Shakespeare's career would help define that threshold. Shakespeare appears to tread carefully, as in this passage from Richard II, setting the stage for the power of counsel and advisors to sway or guide a king. Richard II to Gaunt. Uncle, even in the glasses of thine eyes, I see thy grieved heart. Thy sad aspect hath from the number of his banished years plucked four away. The bowling broke. Six frozen winters spent return with welcome home from banishment. Bowling broke. How long a time lies in one little word? Four lagging winters and four wanton springs. And in a word? Such is the breath of kings. Gaunt. I thank my liege that in regard of me he shortens four years of my son's exile, but little vantage shall I reap thereby. For ere the six years that he has spent can change their moons and bring their times about, my oil-dried lamp and time-be-wasted light shall be extinct with age and endless night. My inch of taper will be burnt and done, and blindfold death not let him see my son. King Richard. Why, uncle, thou hast many years to live. Gaunt. But... Not a minute, king, that thou canst give. Shorten my days, thou canst with sullen sorrow, and pluck nights from me, but not lend a morrow. Thou canst help time to furrow me with age, but stop no wrinkle in its pilgrimage. Thy word is current with him for my death, but dead, 
A kingdom cannot buy my breath. King Richard, thy son is banished upon good advice. Whereto thy tongue a party verdict gave. Why, at our injustice, seemst thou then our lower? Gaunt, things sweet to taste prove in digestion sour. You urged me as a judge, but I had rather you would have bid me argue like a father. Oh, had it been a stranger, not my child, to soothe his fault, I should have been more mild. A partial slander sought I to avoid, and in the sentence, my own life destroyed. Alas, I looked when some of you should say, I was too strict to make mine go away. But you gave leave to my willing tongue, against my will to do myself this wrong. King Richard, to Bolingbroke. Farewell, cousin. An uncle? Bid him so. Six years we banish him, and he shall go. At worst, Richard appears fated to the events and the people around him in an ever more spiraling series of intrigues and miscues until the inevitable befalls the deposed king. Richard II. No matter where, of comfort no man speak. Let's talk of graves and worms and epitaphs. Make dust our paper, and with rainy eyes, write sorrow on the bosom of the earth. Let's choose executors and talk of wills, and yet not so. For what can we bequeath? Save our deposed bodies to the ground, our lands, our lives, and all our Bolingbrokes. And nothing we can call our own but death, and that small model of the barren earth, which serves as paste and cover to our bones. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings, how some may have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they may have deposed, some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping killed, all murdered, for within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death at his court, and where the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a breath, a little scene, to monarchize the feared and kill with looks, infusing him with self and vain conceit. But if this flesh, which walls about our life, were brass impregnable, and humored thus, comes at last with a little pin, bores through the castle wall, and farewell, king. Cover your heads and mock not flesh and blood with solemn reference. Throw away respect, tradition, form, and ceremonious duty, for you have but mistook me all this while. I live with bread like you, feel want, taste grief, need friends. Subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? Where Marlowe sought to tear down King Edward, April 25th, 1284, to September 21st, 1327, Shakespeare exhibits the full value of his rhetorical education. Professor Smith, quote, The play neither hides nor maximizes Richard's faults, and its apparent impartiality means that neither candidate is idealized. Richard has his favorites, those caterpillars of the Commonwealth. The chronicler 
Raphael Hollingshed, one of Shakespeare's sources, summarizes Richard's downfall as a result of his shortcomings as a ruler. Quote, By reason he was so governed to follow evil counsel and used such inconvenient ways and means through insolent misgovernance and youthful courage. Unquote. And there is this cautionary attributed to the Roman emperor Diocletian. Quote, How often is the interest of four or five ministers to combine together to deceive their sovereign, secluded from mankind by his exalted dignity, the truth is concealed from his knowledge. He can only see with their eyes. He hears nothing but their misinterpretations. He confers the most important offices upon vice and weakness and disgraces the most virtuous and deserving among his subjects. By such infamous arts and best and wisest princes are sold to the venal corruption of their courtiers. Unquote. Source, page 394, Edward Gibbon, The History and Decline of the Roman Empire. Shakespeare renders Richard sensitively, unlike Marlowe's inflammatory characterization of Edward. In writing Richard's death, Shakespeare at once characterizes him as an aggrieved hero and proud victim. Given the lesson of Kidd and Marlowe and the hostile tenor of the Protestant government, there was certainly incentive for Shakespeare not to leave any notes, sketches, or diaries which might be perceived as incriminating. The work, painstakingly even-handed and without obvious partisanship, would stand on its own merits. Shakespeare was already known in the just-outside-London theatre circuit by 1593, and had already had seven plays performed on stage. He had completed his three-part Henry VI, as well as Titus Andronicus, the year before. Once again, Shakespeare was astute with the Henry saga to remain sympathetic to Henry's perilous situation, while emphasizing the political machinations complicating and crippling his situation. In the winter of 1593, Queen Elizabeth began a massive anti-heresy campaign spurred by assassination of plots against her by Catholic separatists. A number of arrests and executions followed, including several separatist leaders and several printers who were accused of aiding them. The crackdown was ostensibly against Catholics who, quote, secretly adhere to our most capital enemy, the Bishop of Rome, unquote. The Queen's commissioners incarcerated parishioners who failed or refused to attend Mass. On May 11, 1593, the arrest of Kidd and others was ordered for, quote, diverse lewd and mutinous libels, unquote. At the heart of the issue was the so-called Dutch Church libel that April, in which documents posted around London threatened Dutch Protestant immigrants. The documents were likely false. They were written in bad prose and contained references to Marlowe's plays, The Jews of Malta, and The Massacre of Paris. They were signed Tamerlane, the title character from a Marlowe play. 
The audacious nature of Marlowe's theatrical indictments of the powerful made him a ready target. This is from the Dutch Church Libel, 1593. Note the writer's use of tried-and-true anti-immigrant memes. In chambers, twenty in a house will lurk. Raising of rents was never known before. Living far better than at native home. And our poor souls are clean thrust out of door. And to the wares are sent abroad to Rome to fight it out for France and Belgia. And die like dogs as sacrifice for you. Expect, therefore, such a fatal day shortly on you and for yours to ensue as never was seen. Since our words, nor threats, nor any other thing can make you avoid this certain ill, we'll cut your throats in your temples praying. Not Paris massacre, so much blood did spill, as we will do vengeance on you all. Events unfolded quickly. Baines, the disgraced priest, English spy, and roommate to Kid Marlowe, was apparently instrumental in the arrest and torture of Kid, eliciting a supposed confession we can be quite certain that Baines had a deeper motive, or perhaps had simply entrapped Kid and Marlowe. Baines suddenly produced a note, the Baines note, detailing offenses committed by Marlowe. That one Rick Chomley hath confessed, Baines wrote in the note, that he was persuaded by Marlowe's reason to become an atheist. These things, with many others, shall by good and honest witness be approved to be his opinions in common speeches, and that this Marlowe doth not only hold them himself, but almost unto every company he cometh, he persuades men to atheism. Marlowe was subsequently arrested. On May 20th, after posting bail, he was ordered to remain within a dozen miles of the court until trial. Baines delivered his damning note to the Queen's Commission on May 27th. Three days later, however, Marlowe was stabbed to death. May 30th, 1593, under mysterious and suspicious circumstances. Five centuries later, the circumstances of Marlowe's death remain elusive. Baines emerges as a suspect. The Baines note makes it plainly obvious that Marlowe, and not Kidd, was the real target. Kidd was arrested first, and was later released and disgraced by the affair. He died penniless the following year. He seems to have served a purpose in framing Marlowe. For Marlowe to receive a trial, hopeless as it was, to avoid certain conviction, required the accused to speak on his own behalf. Though Marlowe was accused of atheism, the Catholic constituency in England stood to capitalize on the trial. Bain's recommendation in his note, quote, I think all men in Christianity ought to endeavor that the mouth of so dangerous a member may be stopped, unquote, was nearly unequivocal. The Norton Anthology of English Literature echoes the official government statement that Christopher Marlowe died during a brawl at a tavern, stabbed through the eye and killed instantly. Charles Nichol, author of The Reckoning, The Murder of Christopher Marlowe, published in 1992 in London, cites evidence of a cover-up for a purposeful assassination of Marlowe. Despite the official inquest, it seems few were persuaded. Shakespeare recalled Marlowe in his 1599 play, As You Like It, with a reference 
that would have been apparent to contemporary audiences. Here's a bit from As You Like It by William Shakespeare. Touchstone. I am here with thy goats as the most capricious poet, Honest Ovid, was among the Goths. Jacques. To himself. Oh, knowledge ill-inhabited, worse than Jove in a thatched house. Touchstone. But a man's verses cannot be understood, nor a man's good wits seconded with the forward child. Understanding, it strikes a man more dead than a great reckoning in a little room. Truly, I would the gods had made thee poetical. Audrey. I do not know what poetical is. Is it honest indeed in word? Is it a true thing? Touchstone. No, truly, for the truest poetry is the most feigning, and the lovers are given to poetry, and what they swear in poetry may be said as lovers they do feign. Shakespeare's plays may be categorized as tragedies, histories, or comedies. There is a degree of overlap and subjectivity in those categories. Shakespeare's tragedy, Romeo and Juliet, written between 1594 and 1595, has elements of both tragedy and comedy. It is often categorized as a romantic tragedy. But why did a 30-year-old Shakespeare write a coming-of-age romance about teenage lovers? Again, are we seeing him maneuver between socio-political commentary, psychosexual discussion, and personal narrative? Earlier, we explored the idea of proper attribution as important to every artist. We have also seen how a good and compelling story is eternal. Pre-biblical Hebrew and Quranic stories were woven into those later narratives from far older stories and parables. The Bible story of Genesis and the creation myth was first recorded in the Elba tablets more than 2,000 years earlier as part of a pagan tradition. The story of Moses' origins borrow directly from King Sargon of Akkad. We have shown how every civilization on earth had a great flood story, and that may have had Ice Age or post-Ice Age common denominators, which brings us back to proper attribution. For the Shakespeare attribution debate, 14th century English philosopher and Catholic theologian William Occam's, circa 1287 to April 10th, 1347, rule must be applied. Occam's Rule, or Occam's Razor, states that entities must not be multiplied beyond necessity, often a bit incorrectly oversimplified as the simplest explanation is often the best explanation. Of course, even Occam built upon Ptolemy's second century concept, it is considered a good principle to explain phenomena by the simplest hypothesis possible. Like a great story, a good idea holds great resonance. The anti-Stratfordians are right in one key aspect of Shakespeare's work, while still misreading the results. 
Shakespeare's work was derivative in many cases, just not by whom they believe. This point is key, not only to understanding Shakespeare and his contemporaries, but the evolution of our storytelling species. Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet provides a window into both accounts. Romeo and Juliet is a play written and adapted by William Shakespeare between 1591 and 1595. But he is not the original author. Shakespeare's primary source for his story were from two narrative poems, the first published in 1562 by the English poet Arthur Brooke, who died on March 19, 1563, and was titled The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet, apparently translated from the Italian novella by Matteo Bandello, circa 1479 to 1562 who tells a tragic love story about a man named Romeo Titanus and Juliet Bibliothet. The other was an English translation of the same story by French humanist writer Pierre Bastrau, 1517-1566, from William Painter. The story is included in Volume 3 of the three-volume Palace of Pleasure, written in 1567, as Romeo and Juliet, or The Goodly History of the True and Constant Love Between Romeo and Juliet, The One Who Died of Poison and the Other of Sorrow. In 1476, the Italian writer Masuccio Salernitano, 1410-1475, in a story published after his death, Mariotto Iganosa, in his original piece, The Two Sienese Lovers, fall head over heels, but when a gentleman is killed in an argument with Mariotto, he flees to Alexandria. Ganoza, to be reunited with her lover, pretends to be dead, only to slip away and be reunited with Mariotto. Through a fateful miscommunication, Mariotto returns to Siena to face justice. When she learns that Mariotto has been executed, Ganoza retires to a monastery where she dies in seclusion and grief. Fifty-six years later, in 1530, Luigi da Porta, 1485-1529, wrote about two Sienese lovers who marry against the wishes of their respective families and end up committing suicide for each other. Now they were called Giulietta and Romeo. The story of these two tragic lovers was famous in Renaissance England. Shakespeare may have read Brooks' translation a Bandello as a boy. He certainly relied heavily upon them in writing his play. In fact, Shakespeare adapted a number of Bandello stories, including parts of Much Ado About Nothing and parts of The Twelfth Night. But the essence of the characters and their dialogues were all Shakespeare. All this in an age before copyright in which stories of old would be tempered in fertile minds and the theater devours material. Rosalind, Romeo's first love interest in Shakespeare's version, we can speculate, might have been fashioned after his wife Anne. Was Romeo and Juliet a reveal about Shakespeare's young love interrupted by his relationship with Anne Hathaway? Was the conflict between the Capulets and Montagues a statement on the building impasse between English Catholics and Protestants? Two households both alike in dignity. In Fair Verona, 
where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge, break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. Whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which, but their children's end, naught could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage. The which, if you will patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. Or perhaps, in part, Shakespeare was speaking to his eldest daughter, Susanna, just coming to puberty. Away from Stratford, for extended periods, the piece might well have proved a bit of fatherly compensation about the perils of passion and young love. Like this passage from Romeo and Juliet. Juliet. My ears have not yet drunk a hundred words of thy tongue's utterings. Yet I know the sound. Art thou not Romeo and a Montague? Romeo. Neither, fair maiden, if either thee dislike. Juliet. How camest thou hither? Tell me, and wherefore? The orchard walls are high and hard to climb, and the place death, considering who thou art, if any of my kinsmen find thee here. Romeo. With love's light wings did I o'erperch these walls. For stony limits cannot hold love out. And what can love do that dares love attempt? Therefore, thy kinsmen are no stop to me. Juliet. If they do see thee, they will murder thee. Romeo. Alack, there lies more peril in thine eye than twenty of their swords. Look thou but sweet, and I am proof against their enmity. Juliet. I would not for the world they saw thee here. Romeo. I have a knight's cloak to hide me from their eyes, and, but thou love me, let them find me here. My life were better ended by their hate than death prolonged, waiting of my love. Juliet. By whose direction foundest thou out of this place? Romeo. By love that first did prompt me to inquire. He lent me counsel, and I lent him eyes. I am no pilot, yet wert thou as far as the vast shore washed, with the farthest sea I should adventure for such merchandise. Juliet. Thou knowest the mask of night is on my face. Else would a maiden blush be paint my cheek, for that what thou hast heard me speak tonight. Fain would I dwell on form. Fain, fain deny what I have spoke. But farewell, compliment. Dost thou love me? I know thou wilt say, I, and I will take thy word. Yet if thou swearest, thou mayst prove false. At lovers' perjuries, they say, Jove laughs. O oh, gentle Romeo, if thou dost love, pronounce it faithfully. Or, if thou thinkest I am too quickly won, I'll frown and be perverse 
and say thee nay. So thou wilt woo, but else, not for the world. In truth, fair Montague, I am too fond, and therefore thou mayst think my behavior light. But trust me, gentleman, I'll prove more true than those that have more coying to be strange. I should have been more strange, I must confess. But that thou overhurtst, I was ware of my true love passion. Therefore pardon me, and not impute this yielding to light love, which the dark night hath so discovered. It may well have been all of those things, and none of them. Therein lies the eternal magic of Shakespeare, a rare, insightful, and eminently malleable storyteller whose talent would arguably only be repeated two centuries later by Mark Twain, November 30th, 1835, to April 21st, 1910. In the nearly four centuries since Shakespeare, his plays have been interpreted and reinterpreted to a fantastic and virtually infinite degree. He gave the actor the essential tool of motivation. Romeo and Juliet and the other works by Shakespeare have been reimagined and performed around the globe, in virtually every language and every country. There is a notable paucity on stage direction which opens the characters and composition to all manner of timeless possibilities and perspective. The malleability of the work has allowed directors and actors alike a virtually limitless canvas with which to render aspects and perspectives undreamed of by William Shakespeare. Shakespeare's final play, The Tempest, was printed posthumous to the playwright in 1623. It was likely written between 1610 and 1611, and may have been his final solo piece. In the epilogue, delivered by Prospero, Shakespeare delivers a personal message, taking a final bow from a long and personal career. This from The Tempest. Now my charms are all overthrown, and what strength I have's my own. I must be confined by you, or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom, got and pardoned the deceiver. I must be here confined by you, or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom, got and pardoned the deceiver, dwell in the spare island by your spell. But release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours on my sails must fill, or else my project fails. Which was to please, now I want, spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair, unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees my faults. As you from crimes would pardon be, let your indulgence set me free. If William Shakespeare was, as anti-Stratfordians assert, a plagiarist before plagiarism, or something else, shouldn't he also be credited for masterfully and perfectly weaving personal notes and details into someone else's narrative? On June 29, 1613, the Globe Theatre, in which Shakespeare was a partner and its most famous playwright, burned to the ground 
during a performance of Henry VIII. He died on April 23, 1616. Shakespeare was 52 years of age. A powerful faction of English Protestants had endeavored to close the theaters for some years. Sometime around 1622, a Puritan lawyer named William Prine completed work on a 1,000-page anti-theater and anti-Christian holiday celebration scree titled Histriomastics, The Player's Scourge. Histriomastics would languish unpublished for the next 10 years until 1632. Though, ultimately, Prine's polemic contained a number of passages deemed seditious. Leading to his arrest and trial, the piece illustrates puritanical sentiments in England and against the theater. 26 years after Shakespeare's passing, on September 2, 1642, Parliament ordered that all theaters in London be closed, ostensibly with respect to a civil war which had just broken out in England. The order read, Whereas the distressed state of Ireland, steeped in her own blood, and the distracted state of England, threatened with a cloud of blood by a civil war, call for all possible means to appease and avert the wrath of God. Appearing in these judgments, among which fasting and prayer, having been often tried to be very effectual, having been lately enjoined, and whereas public sports do not well agree with the public calamities, nor the public stage plays, with the seasons of humiliation, this being an exercise of sad and pious solemnity, and the other being spectacles of pleasure, too commonly expressing lasciviousness, mirth, and levity. It is therefore thought fit and ordained by the lords and commons in this parliament assembled, that, while these sad causes and set times of humiliation do continue, public stage plays shall cease and be forlorn, instead of which are recommended to the people of this land the profitable and seasonable considerations of repentance, reconciliation, and peace with God, which probably may produce outward peace and prosperity, and bring again times of joy and gladness to these nations. That ban would remain in place until 1660, when the ban was finally lifted under King Charles II. If you like this program, please click the subscribe button for future notifications on programs and upcoming guests. And feel free to share this podcast with friends. Until next time, I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Thank you.